0: Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised." Little grips people's imaginations like stories of what might have been, alternative histories where Zeppelins fill the skies, the Nazis won World War II, JFK was never assassinated. One such speculative tale revolves around a subject already heady with conspiracy and legend, the Apollo moon landings. We can only imagine what alternative history would have unfolded if the program had not been canceled, but continued to explore the moon. But one man claims the program was not canceled. In fact, he claims that Apollo 18, 19, and 20 did, in fact, go to the moon despite what was reported. And what Apollo 20 found was beyond incredible. It was downright unbelievable. On the other side of the moon, a crashed alien spacecraft, complete with the dead bodies of its crew. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. I'd like to invite you to the very first live stream of Weird Darkness. I'm getting a little bit nervous about it as we get closer to this date. We're actually doing it on Halloween itself, and I'm going to be on camera telling the stories via YouTube. So if you want to watch the video stream live, uh, be sure to subscribe to my channel at youtube.com/slash Marlar House. Uh, Marlar House is M-A-R-L-A-R-H-O-U-S-E, all one word, youtube.com slash Marlar Again, it is live October 31st, and I'll begin streaming at 5 p.m. Central Time. That would be 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific, and you can get all the details by clicking the link in the show notes. And also October is the official anniversary month of Weird Darkness, so to celebrate, Instead of asking you to become a patron or promoting one of my audiobooks, I'm asking you to please help me raise funds for depression and suicide prevention. And you can make your donation right now by visiting weirddarkness.com and then clicking on Battle the Darkness. Now our goal is $1000. I can't believe we are already at $710. I I have underestimated the generosity of the weirdo family, I cannot thank all of you so so much for uh, how far we've come already towards hitting our goal. Uh, you know what? If we do hit that goal, which it looks like we're going to, I'm gonna raise it again just so we can keep moving forward because this this is such a very worthy cause, and I'd love to be able to raise as much as possible. I don't want to stop at a thousand if we can do more for uh, suicide and depression prevention. So. Please give and also encourage others to do so as well. Any size donation, it all adds up, and uh, let's help those suffering from depression and thoughts of suicide. All right. So again, click on Battle the Darkness, and uh, you can do that at WeirdDarkness.com, or you can just click the link in the show notes. And thank you in advance for listening to your heart. And I have a lot of people to thank over the last few days, and I'll get to that list later on in the show. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness … It's been 12 years since Jennifer Kess disappeared from her Florida home without a trace. What happened to her? We'll look inside this case that is still a mystery. In 1894, a massive fire broke out in the forests of Minnesota, killing more than 400 people. Do their ghosts remain behind with the ashes? a teenager tells how ghosts are just part of day-to-day living for her family. Today, being Columbus Day, I thought it would be appropriate to share this one. One of the most well-known explorers, Christopher Columbus, he had a signature that was so perplexing that most scholars believe it is a secret code of some kind. And so far, an unbreakable code at that. Some victims died because they happened to leave their doors unlocked. Others had been methodically stalked. How do serial killers choose their victims? We'll look at the methods of nine of the most notorious serial killers in history. And did a secret Apollo mission to the dark side of the moon discover an ancient alien life form? We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Official history tells us that the last time man ever went to the moon was in December 1972. When Apollo 17 astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt spent a record-breaking three days on the lunar surface. But more Apollo missions were originally planned, Apollo 18, 19, and 20 having already begun construction or in the latter planning stages when they were canceled in 1972. A combination of declining public interest and budget cuts making the once-prestigious moon program Fall out of favor in Washington. Science fiction can speculate on what would have happened if these programs had gone ahead. Perhaps we would have habitable colonies on the moon today, or staging posts for trips to Mars. And maybe we would have explored the dark side of the moon, long rumored to contain remnants of an ancient alien civilization. In 2007, a mysterious figure took to YouTube with evidence that this incredible scenario was not speculative fiction but a clandestine fact, one hidden from the world to protect the truth about what they had found on Earth's closest neighbor. A user calling himself Retired AFB posted a number of videos purporting to be footage of a secret Apollo 20 mission, jointly manned by U.S. and Soviet astronauts that took place in August of 1976. Retired AFB identified himself as William Rutledge, a now elderly and retired NASA astronaut in exile in Rwanda who took part in the secret Apollo 20 mission alongside fellow astronauts Leona Marietta-Snyder and Alexei Leonov. According to Rutledge, Apollo 20's mission was to explore the polar region of the Moon on its dark side investigate images supposedly taken by Apollo 15 of the area which showed what appeared to be a vast ancient city and a huge, miles-long crashed spacecraft. Rutledge's footage would be astonishing, if true, as it shows both the alien city and a flyover of the cigar-shaped spaceship. The videos then cut to the Apollo 20 crew actually exploring the interior of the crashed ship and, perhaps most amazing of all, discovering the body of a human-like alien. Dubbed Mona Lisa by the astronauts, the body appeared to have been that of a young woman, partially mummified with a thin layer of a waxy substance covering its skin. She appeared to be locked into the controls of the spacecraft by a device connected to her eyes and nose. In an interview with an Italian journalist, Luca Scantumberlo, Rutledge went into more details about their discovery of Mona Lisa, explaining that the EBE, extraterrestrial biological entity, appeared to be neither alive or dead, but in some kind of state of suspended animation. According to Rutledge, the alien was disconnected from the navigational device and returned back to Earth aboard the lunar module, where the body still resides today. Rutledge also described the ship, We went inside the big spaceship, also into a triangular one. The major conclusions of the exploration were it was a mothership, very old, that crossed the universe at least a billion years ago." Understandably, due to the sensational nature of the videos, Rutledge's posts to YouTube gathered millions of hits. But soon after, he claims his account was hacked and the videos deleted. Was NASA trying to destroy the evidence of these most secret of missions? If so, it didn't work. Quickly, Rutledge and others would set up multiple mirrored versions of the videos on several different video-sharing websites, and they remain widely available today. But did NASA, or anyone, really need to worry? For many, the story was simply too incredible to be believed. Indeed, more than one commentator noted how similar religious claims were to a variety of science fiction films. Could there be any truth in the Apollo 20 story? Photographs of the lunar surface taken by Apollo 15 in 1971 do appear to show some strange anomalies in the Del Portalzac region in the southern region of the moon's dark side. An unusual cigar-shaped object situated on the edge of a crater Can clearly be seen in several of the NASA photographs circulating on the Internet, including those on NASA's very own website. The feature looks to have mass and form, and seems to sit on top of the moon's surface rather than be a part of it. The videos of the supposed Apollo 20 flyover of the craft show it to be stone-like in texture, but covered in intricate carvings and patterns that could not possibly be natural. If the footage is a hoax, then the creators have avoided the obvious temptation to make their spaceship metallic and futuristic-looking, instead opting for a curious megalithic design replete with elaborate decoration. Rulledge's account of the Apollo 20 mission and his video footage have been met with widespread skepticism. But if they are a hoax, he has managed to insert some authentic details into his story that give it some hint of authenticity. Whilst Rutledge and Leona Marietta-Snyder appear in no official lists of NASA or Soviet astronauts, Alexei Leonov was an internationally respected Soviet cosmonaut, best known for becoming the first man to walk in space in 1965. For hoaxers to include such a high-profile figure as Leonov was risky, as he could simply have come out with unassailable proof that he was elsewhere at the time of the mission and the whole deception would instantly fall apart. Was this bold choice of using a real cosmonaut actually evidence for Apollo 20's authenticity? One figure shown briefly in the videos even looks like Leonov, which at least attests to an attention to detail. Other aspects of the footage show that if a hoax the creators had access to either real Apollo mission hardware or a very good replica of it. Several shots in the videos showing the interior of the lunar module are exact and impressive replicas of the real thing. An Apollo 20 badge, complete with the names of the three astronauts, is also visible in some frames as further proof this is not simply recycled footage from one of the earlier official Apollo missions if Rutledge was really an imposter, then this part of the video was well-produced. He must have had a decent-sized budget to replicate a whole Apollo module interior inside a studio, indicating this was a professional operation. Alternatively, he may have somehow secured access to a real Apollo lunar module housed in a museum, although it seems unlikely any museum would ever consent to the filming of a hoax video in such a location. Was the real reason Rutledge's depiction of the module's interior so accurate because it was genuinely filmed aboard a secret Apollo 20 mission to the moon? There are numerous examples of researchers and investigators discovering anomalous artifacts and structures in NASA photographs, both of the moon and other planets in the solar system. Author and lecturer Richard C. Hoagland is a proponent of many such claims most famously that of the Face on Mars, a striking formation in the Cydonia region of the planet's surface that Hoagland still insists is a giant alien statue of a human-like face. Like many such observations, Hoagland's work is based on poor-quality, blurry photos, often nth-generation copies found on the Internet. Invariably, when higher-quality source images are found, many of these seemingly artificial structures proved to just be optical illusions. And that proved to be the case when newer, far-higher resolution images gathered by probes such as NASA's Mars Global Surveyor in 2003 showed the Cydonia face was merely a hill, an entirely natural structure that only vaguely resembled a face when illuminated at the right angle. Hoagland's work is an example of a psychological phenomenon called pareidolia, the tendency of the human mind to perceive significant patterns where there are none. Often this takes the form of seeing human faces or animals in abstract or formless images. William Rulloch's story of Apollo 20 begins with the premise that Apollo 15 captured images of a giant, cigar-shaped mothership on the dark side of the moon. Many of the images circling on the Internet today do show what appears to be an artificial object, but they are low-resolution and lack detail. Like the face on Mars, when higher-quality source images are referenced, this mothership is shown to be an optical illusion. The structure is merely a long hill on the lunar surface, which when in deep shadow appears to resemble a cylindrical object. With Rutledge's alien spacecraft vanished into the dust, much of his story disappears with it. How could the crew of Apollo 20 have explored a spaceship that does not exist? Showing that the spacecraft in the photographs is simply a hill does not prove Apollo 20 never flew, but if it did, its mission as stated by Rutledge is a deception. Could the spacecraft story be deliberate misinformation to hide Apollo 20's real mission in a cloak of absurd-sounding science fiction? Or did the apocryphal mission never even get off the ground? The American's mammoth Saturn V rocket remains the only vehicle ever developed that was capable of taking a payload further than low-Earth orbit. As such, all of the Apollo-Moon missions were launched using those rockets. Between 1966 and 1973, 13 of the rockets were successfully launched from the Kennedy Space Center. 12 of them for Apollo and one for Skylab. A further two were constructed but never used and are now on display in museums and space centers across America. This presents a serious problem for William Rutledge's story about a secret Apollo 20 mission. Since the Saturn V was the only rocket capable of propelling a payload beyond Earth orbit, and since all of the known Saturn V rockets are accounted for, How did Apollo 20 even leave the Earth? In order for the Apollo 20 mission to have occurred, we have to propose either the USA had built more Saturn V rockets in secret, or that they or the Soviet Union had developed other completely unknown rocket technologies that were capable of sending men to the moon. Construction of the Saturn V was a massive effort involving tens of thousands of engineers, designers, scientists, and contractors all around the world. The rocket was also vastly expensive. Each one cost over $3 billion, so expensive that the cost was one of the main reasons the Apollo program was canceled by President Nixon. After construction, the next challenge was the logistics of storing and transporting something so huge. Special buildings and vehicles had to be designed, And the moving of the rocket to the launch site involved thousands of people. Even if it was possible to keep all of this completely secret, the real problem would be the launch itself. According to Rutledge, Apollo 20 was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base, an installation that's located close to several large towns and cities in Santa Barbara. There's even a public rail line that runs right alongside the base. The launch of any rocket, let alone something as huge as a Saturn V, would be visible for hundreds of miles around, unmissable to hundreds of thousands of people throughout Southern California. Civil aviation and air traffic control would have to be notified, as would numerous other public bodies. It would essentially be impossible for a secret launch to have occurred from Vandenberg, all but confirming the Apollo 20 story as a hoax, a confirmation that would soon come from the hoaxer himself. French sculptor Thierry Speth claimed responsibility for the Apollo 20 hoax on an internet bulletin board in 2007. Speth's use of the username RetiredAFB elsewhere on the internet was also exposed by several researchers. Although Speth admitted the videos were a hoax, this has not deterred posters on websites and internet forums propagating the videos as genuine, either unaware of Speth's admission or choosing to ignore it. One line of reasoning has it that Speth's confession is itself a hoax, simply an attempt at damage limitation or misinformation from NASA. But a closer look at the videos Speth posted under the pseudonym of William Rutledge show the clear fingerprints of fakery. Since the hoaxers were obviously unable to produce their own footage of the moon, they had no alternative but to use existing NASA photos of the lunar surface in order to create their footage, a fact which makes the task of producing undetectable fakes virtually impossible. Several of the shots of the moon's surface used in the videos are unmistakably composites using such NASA photographs with fictional elements added by the hoaxers. One of the film's most striking sequences was created in this way. The panning shot, showing what appears to be a vast alien city on the lunar surface is actually a digital composite created from an Apollo 17 moon photo combined with a painting of alien landscape by artist Bruce Pennington. The next sequence in the videos, showing the alien mothership, look very much like they were filmed using models, with the wobbly-looking flyover of the craft being perhaps the least convincing part of the whole film. Theory Speth is a sculptor by trade, and he appears to have put his talents to good use in creating the Mona Lisa alien body as well. Indeed, several of the artworks shown on his website have a strong resemblance to the body seen in the videos. As beguiling as she seems, Mona Lisa is, in all likelihood, a clay sculpture, created by Speth as the centerpiece of his hoax. She bears all the hallmarks of the artist's previous works and, whilst very artfully designed, does not convince as a real body in most of the shots in the video. The cavalier attitude toward the alien body is also a giveaway as to its unreality. No quarantine protocols are evident, and the unqualified astronauts perform crude medical procedures on the alien that clearly would never have been allowed in a real NASA mission. There's no doubt that the tale of Apollo 20 and its secret mission to investigate aliens on the moon is a fantastic story. We all want it to be true, which might explain why basic critical faculties are often suspended when the story is recounted on the internet. Those who want to believe will find a way to keep Apollo 20's incredible adventure to the dark side of the moon alive, regardless of the facts. As alternative history, it is more captivating than mere reality. Up next, one of the most well-known explorers, Christopher Columbus, had a signature that was so perplexing that most scholars believe it a secret code of some kind, and so far an unbreakable code. And some victims died because they happened to leave their doors unlocked. Other victims had been methodically stalked. How do serial killers choose their victims? We'll look at the methods of nine of the most notorious serial killers in history. Those stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. Congratulations to Snug Collectibles! They are this week's Weird Darkness Retweet winner and are receiving a free book from Audible.com. Plus, I'm now following them on Twitter. Next week's winner will receive a free Weird Darkness smartphone case, and I'll follow them. If you want to win, it's easy to register. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter, and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. So follow Weird Darkness right now and get to retweeting, you weirdo. IRS Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up – until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions Now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start – and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743 I'm a 19-year-old girl from the west of Scotland. Myself and my family have always had connections with ghosts and spirits and talk openly about them, so it's quite normal for us. I live in an old miner's cottage which was built in the 1800s, and before I lived there, my uncle and cousins did. One day, I watched my cousin as she sat at the bottom of the stairs looking up. I asked what she was looking at, and she just replied with, the man on the stairs. A few years later, I moved in with my mom, and sure enough, every night, I could hear distinct, heavy footsteps walking up and down the stairs. He seems to be pretty chill, and I've never felt threatened in the house with him. He's affectionately named the man on the stairs." Another time I was having trouble in my own room with a spirit and would wake up with things thrown on me and my belongings moved. I wasn't able to sleep in my own room for about a month until I finally went to my parish priest who agreed to come and bless my house for me, and the trouble died down then. But every now and then I begin to feel very uneasy in my room not sure if I should get it blessed again, as I definitely do not want it to get as bad as it was before. I can happily sit in the presence of ghosts, as long as we both go about our own business and I don't feel threatened. Serial Killers Frequently Follow a Pattern That pattern may just be the ways in which they harm their victims, but frequently their patterns extend to the manner in which they choose their victims as well. Some killers target people who look similar or have the same jobs or the same interests. These nine killers all had specific profiles they bore in mind while choosing their next victims. Adam Leroy Lane Lane reportedly hated women, saying they were below him. He's known to have killed two women and was caught while trying to kill a third, a 15-year-old girl. Police believe he may have killed many more as he traveled for his job as a trucker. He put little planning into his attacks. His first known victim was killed while she was outside in her yard, talking on the phone. He chose his second victim by trying doors, Monica Massaro was stabbed to death in her New Jersey home because her door was unlocked. Lane's only goal was to kill women. He didn't particularly care what they did or looked like. Robert Hansen Hansen was an experienced tracker and hunter. He literally hunted his female victims. He either drove or flew them in his private plane to remote sections of Alaska then released them to pursue them through the woods. He kidnapped, raped, and murdered at least 17 women around Anchorage and possibly more than 30. Hansen had a stutter and bad acne growing up. He reportedly felt shunned by attractive girls in his school and turned his revenge fantasies into reality. Hansen primarily targeted good-looking women who worked in the sex trade. Dennis Rader. Rader, the BTK – bind-torture-kill killer – chose his victims carefully. He identified women who fit his specific sexual fantasies, then stalked them over a period of time. He left a frightening note for one intended victim who didn't come home the night he planned to kill her. It read, "...be glad you weren't here, because I was." Raider prioritized targets who lived alone or didn't lock their doors regularly. Anders Breivik This Norwegian mass murderer killed 77 people, first detonating a bomb at a government building, then shooting dozens of people trapped on an island summer camp. Most were the children of liberal Norwegian politicians Breivik, a neo-Nazi, says he planned the terrorist attack for nine years. His manifesto, published the day of the attack, declared his enemies were feminism, Islam, and cultural Marxism. Richard Chase Sometimes called the Vampire of Sacramento, he told police that he chose only victims whose doors were unlocked. He said he considered an unlocked door a sign that his victim wanted him to enter. Chase killed at least six people, drank their blood, and sometimes ate their flesh. Ashley Mervyn Colson Australian killer Colson picked two victims after they put an ad in the paper. Two students were looking for a third person to share their house. Colton answered the ad and forced the two women into separate rooms. The brother-in-law of one of the women was there at the time and Coulson forced him into a third room. All three were hog-tied and shot. No motive has ever been established. Coulson went on to attempt to abduct another couple about a month later, but was stopped by nearby security guards. Colin Ireland Ireland stalked his victims in gay bars choosing men who were willing to be tied up as part of a sexual game. Ireland claimed he was not gay and his motivation was not sexual. Rather, he said it was easier to kill someone when they willingly allowed themselves to be restrained. Ireland killed at least five men and died in prison. Gary Ridgway The so-called Green River Killer targeted vulnerable women prostitutes, and runaways. That may have been why he was able to kill so many before being caught. He was convicted of 49 murders but is believed to have killed twice that number. He himself said he killed so many women that he has trouble keeping them straight. Anthony Sowell When he was arrested, police found 11 bodies in Sowell's Cleveland, Ohio duplex. Sowell, too, chose victims he believed were less likely to be missed. In this case, the killer chose African-American women, typically ones who were not close with their families or struggled with drug use, thinking that police and the community would not be able to come together to find the victims. And he was right. Many of his victims had not even been reported missing by their families. One of the most well-known explorers, but least talked about unsolved codes, is the signature of Christopher Columbus. It might be surprising that, to this day, no one is completely sure on its meaning. The cause for this is because Columbus never explained his reasoning for adopting the mysterious writings of his signet. What is known, however, is that it was very important to him. Columbus began using the mysterious signet after returning from his first voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. The first known example dates to 1483, and historians have numerous other examples and documents demonstrating the curious signature from that time on to his death. He even instructed his heirs to continue using the signet themselves. In doing so, we have a written record for how Columbus described his signature. He directed them to sign with my signature, which I now employ, which is an X with an S over it, and an M with a Roman A over it, and over that an S, and then a Greek Y with an S over it, preserving the relation of the lines and points. If you could see an illustration, the shape is actually the form of a triangle. And by his instructions, this was exactly how it should be written, without alteration. Attempts to decode the signature have of course been made and many theories put forth. They range from stating his signature proves he was secretly a Jew in search of a new land for his persecuted people to being a devout Catholic. One of the most commonly accepted suggestions are that the letters S, -S 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 S-A-S, X-M-Y, Expoferens decode to, translated, Servant I am of the Most Exalted Savior, Christ Mary and Joseph, Christ-Bearer. The last part of his signature, Expo Ferenc, is agreed by most to be a Greek-Latin form for his name Christopher. Expo, a Greek form for Christo, and Ferens is a Latin form. This combination, however, allows for a deeper religious significance to appear in his name. When translated, it can literally mean Christ-Bearer but there are other theories. Some suggest the shape he chose for his signet is important and feel it could mimic the mast of a ship and a Jewish prayer, supporting ideas that Columbus himself was Jewish and looking for a new homeland for his Jewish people. By signing his name as such, he was secretly conveying this to other hidden Jews, some also found his signet to support the Crusades and his desire to free the Holy Land of Muslims. The example given is that his signature can refer to, "...may the Saracens be subjugated, turned away and removed by Christ Mary Joseph." It's difficult to know for certain, though. While many do feel his signature is religious in nature, and that the X, M, Y do connect to Christus, Maria, Josephus, or Christ, Mary and Joseph, some put forth the why might perhaps refer to Isabel, or Queen Isabella, who backed his most famous voyage. Unless a document is found, revealing Christopher Columbus's intentions, it seems the mystery of his signature will continue on. When Weird Darkness returns, it has been twelve years since Jennifer Keys disappeared from her Florida home without a trace. What happened to her? We'll look inside this case that is still a mystery. And in 1894, a massive fire broke out in the forests of Minnesota, killing more than 400 people. Do their ghosts remain behind with the ashes? These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. But rather than me telling you about it, I'd like to read a tweet that was sent to me by Amcat96. She said, «Darren Marlar, my MyPillow came in yesterday, and I didn't think I would like it because of how it was stuffed. Oh, was I wrong. I slept like a baby and woke up and my neck didn't hurt. Made it so much harder to get out of bed. <laughs> Do I hear you, Amcat? I have the same problem. AMCAT96, she was able to take advantage of the Weird Darkness special – two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD – that's MyPillow.com – and then use the promo code WEIRD, or you can call 800-945-7192 – that's 800-945-7192 – or again, MyPillow.com – and then use the promo code WEIRD. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Help line is there for you right now no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 800-830-9804. 800-830-9804. On September 1st, 1894, a massive fire broke out in the forests of Minnesota destroying more than 390 square miles of land and the town of Hinkley. The official death count was 418, although it was likely even higher than that. Many of those who died were simply never found. It was a hot summer in Minnesota in 1894, with high temperatures, a two-month-long drought, and then common method of lumber harvesting in place, which stripped branches in place and littered the ground with flammable debris, a terrible fire was simply a matter of time. The deadly combination began with several small fires in Pine County, Minnesota that united into a firestorm. As the heat, smoke and gases from the smaller fires rose into the sky, they were pushed back down by cooler air above. As the heat came down, it swirled into a tornado of flames. Which then began to move quickly and grew larger and larger, turning into a horrific firestorm. The fire first destroyed the towns of Mission Creek and Brook Park before coming into the town of Hinckley. The temperature rose to at least 2,000 degrees, melting barrels of nails into a solid mass and fused cars on the eastern Minnesota railroad yard to the tracks. Some residents escaped by climbing into wells, ponds, or the Grindstone River. Others made it aboard the two crowded trains that managed to pull out of Hinckley before it was consumed by flames. James Root, an engineer on a train heading south from Duluth, rescued nearly 300 people by backing up a train nearly five miles to Skunk Lake, where the passengers escaped the fire. William Best was an engineer on the second train. And he steamed to Hinkley to try and save as many people as possible. When the smoke finally cleared, Hinckley was in ruins. It had also destroyed the nearby settlements of Mission Creek, Brook Park, Sandstone, Miller, Partridge, and Gama. Hundreds of acres of land lay black and smoldering, and hundreds had been killed. Could this be why ghost stories still linger in Hinkley? In the small town was a gravel pit where many residents were unable to make it to the trains and they took refuge from the fire. The pit had been dug by the railroad and had filled with water from a natural spring. After the summer drought, though, the water was only about three feet deep. Many considered it an eyesore, but it ended up saving the lives of more than 100 people, livestock, and wild animals during the fire everyone who took refuge there survived, except for one man who fainted and was stepped on by a cow and died. Fire victims waited out the blaze in the pit, emerging to find their town was in ashes. The pit was eventually filled in and became part of a public park. But despite the lack of death connected to it, it has come to be considered a haunted place. They say that if you are a believer in ghosts, the town of Hinckley will offer many opportunities to find them. At the site of the old gravel pit, strange lights at night and, as one resident stated, sometimes there are more dead people in the streets of Hinckley than live ones. On the evening of January 24, 2006, friends and family of 24-year-old Floridian Jennifer Keese had already begun to pass out flyers requesting information on the whereabouts of the young woman who had vanished either late the night before or early that morning. By the following day, news of her disappearance had spread beyond Orlando and into national news outlets. Before she vanished, Jennifer Keese seemed to have it all. A loving family and boyfriend, a great job and no reason for her to drop everything and run away. Her loved ones naturally assumed that something terrible must have happened. That remains the prevailing assumption today, but more than a decade later, detectives still have not made much headway in the case. There is some haunting, grady video footage of a person of interest and authorities have found Kesey's abandoned car, but there is, overall, minimal physical evidence for law enforcement to work with. So what exactly happened to Jennifer Keese in 2006. Jennifer Keese was 24 at the time of her disappearance and, by all accounts, was a successful young woman. She had a stable job working as a finance manager for Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Ocoee, Florida, and was the proud new owner of a condo in nearby Orlando. Keese and her boyfriend, Robert Allen, had recently vacationed in the U.S. Virgin Islands life appeared pleasant. Then came the morning of January 24th. Keese had returned home from work around 6 p.m. the night prior and chatted with her family on the phone. She called her boyfriend later that night at around 10 p.m. before turning in for bed. Robert Allen would be the last person in Keese's inner circle to have connected with her. It was common for Keese to call or send a text message to her boyfriend as she was leaving for work but no message came on the morning of January 24th. Concerned, Alan made several attempts to contact his girlfriend, but texts went unreceived and phone calls went straight to voicemail. Coworkers had also begun to wonder why they hadn't heard from Keese. It was unlike her to not call in, and she had missed an important morning meeting. At 11 a.m., Jennifer Keese's employer contacted her parents to inform them of the situation. Realizing that something was amiss with their daughter, Drew and Joyce Keese made the drive down from Tampa to Orlando to check if their daughter was at her home. They soon discovered that her car was missing, but that her condo did not show any signs of disarray. They found a damp towel, puddles in the shower suggesting she washed before work that morning, a pair of pajamas on the floor and some makeup on the counter. Her mother noted in the podcast Unconcluded, which details the investigation, that a particular pair of pumps that Keese was excited about was missing from her closet that morning. All of this evidence seemed to indicate that Keese had left for work, as usual. It should be noted, however, that the Orlando police never processed Keese's condo as a crime scene. So, where was she? In the years following Jennifer Keese's disappearance, police had managed to track down her car, but not much else. Two days after Keese disappeared, police received a phone call from somebody who had seen a photo of her car on the news and thought that it looked a lot like the one parked outside their apartment complex. It was indeed the car in question, a black 2004 Chevy Malibu. Upon analyzing the car at the police crime lab, just two pieces of physical evidence were recovered – a latent print deemed too minuscule to yield any helpful information and a small amount of DNA. A DVD player of hers remained in the backseat of the car, and because Keese's personal effects like her cell phone and purse had never been located, it can be surmised that the motive of the suspect was not robbery. While the lack of physical evidence from the car was frustrating, The video footage captured from the apartment complex was just as disappointing for detectives. The surveillance video showed a person of interest dropping off the car at noon on the day of the disappearance, but any physical description of the suspect is almost entirely obscured by the apartment's gate. The cameras were designed to capture images just once every three seconds, as opposed to continuously, and it just so happened that at each interval, The person of interest was obscured by a different gatepost while walking by. Investigators went so far as to tap NASA to enhance the video footage of the person but have been unable to determine whether that person was even a man or a woman. Police could only discern that the person was between 5'3 and 5'5. Journalists who covered the story reported that the obscured footage made this person of interest the luckiest person of interest ever without much physical evidence to go on, the investigation turned to those who knew Jennifer Keese. Her boyfriend and brother both checked out and the an next boyfriend who had wanted to rekindle the relationship was also ruled out. Detectives learned that an older work colleague had unsuccessfully pursued a romantic relationship, but he too was determined unsuspicious. Keese had mentioned to her family that construction workers doing renovations at her complex would occasionally catcall but those leads also turned up nothing her credit cards went unused after her disappearance and her cell phone had been turned off the beloved daughter of the keys family was nowhere to be found and there were no clues to go on imagine waking up and your daughter is nowhere to be found orlando police detective teresa sprague told the orlando sentinel on the 10th anniversary of the disappearance you can't reach her you can't locate her. The police can't locate her. Hours turn into panic, and days into your worst nightmare. I cannot imagine the nightmare the Keys family had been sleepwalking through for the last ten years. As of late, the Keys family has been largely disappointed in the Orlando police investigation, stating that they have largely withheld information from the family. They add that outside of a two-page document. The police have had little contact with the family regarding their progression of the case. We need to get this information, Keese's father reported to Fox News. After 12 years, we deserve that." Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact Crime Line Florida. You can find a link to them in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this month I'm asking you to help raise as much money as we can for depression and suicide prevention. And you can give right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. And as of recording this particular episode, we're currently at $710, which is a lot farther than I expected to be at this point, and I have a lot of people to thank for that. Nicole gave us a donation of $10. Stephen donated 50 Seth donated $100. Michelle gave us 20 Jacqueline gave us $100. Herb gave us $25. Uh, Jessica donated $20. Callie uh, donated 10 Christine donated $40. Uh, Michelle donated 10 It It just goes on and on. We've had a lot of people donating, and I can't thank you enough. So, uh, if you haven't already, please consider giving right now. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or you can uh, click the link in the show notes. And by the way, if we do hit that $1,000 goal – which it looks like we're going to at this rate, because the weirdos who are listening are a lot more generous than I expect them to be – we'll probably just bump up the goal to $2,000 so we can continue to raise money for such a worthy cause. Also, at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, get stories that I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. And if you like the show, please do me a favor and tell your friends about it on your social media, text, email, any other way you connect with the outside world. That is greatly beneficial, more than you could possibly know. If you want to drop me an email, you can do that anytime at Darren at WeirdDarkness.com, And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment and leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Jacob Chapos left a review in Apple Podcasts and he said, Love it. I love the show. I've been tuned in for about a week now. I've been traveling quite a bit lately and some of the podcasts freaked me out not from the darkness or being present in some of the towns the stories are based from, but from the sound effects in the program. The one that stands out in my mind sounded like a major air leak, so I had to pull my tractor-trailer over and do another pre-trip just to make sure. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Currently living in Wyoming, and hearing about the gray monster in the mountain outside of Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm pretty sure that was my buddy Paul. He tends to become very frustrated and disappears into the hill whenever he needs to be alone. (laughs) ***Thank you, Jacob. That's great. Uh, DNP04 posted a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Great podcast, creepy and fun. Just discovered this podcast and will continue to listen. And Sinead in Great Britain said, Hi, Weirdos! This is my favorite podcast. It's narrated beautifully and the stories are so incredibly creepy. I am truly addicted to this podcast. You are truly killing it. Love, Sinead from the UK. Well, Thanks to everybody for the reviews and the emails you've been sending, and if you haven't already, please take a moment, drop me an email or a review. I might read yours in an upcoming podcast. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Ghosts, a Part of My Life, was written by M. Lynch. Under a flaming sky, was written by Troy Taylor. Apollo 20: Journey into Darkness was posted at The Unredacted. The Secret Code Signature of Christopher Columbus was written by Jenny Kyle. How Do Serial Killers Select Their Victims was posted at The Lineup. And Inside the Unsolved Disappearance of Jennifer Keith was written by Joel Stice. And again, if you would like to contact Crime Line Florida, there is a link in the show notes. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Deuteronomy 3 verse 22. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.